Is it a ballad? Well, we're saying yes, because tonight, Patty Smith, written by Bruce Springsteen. This has got a smile on your face. Hello, Billy. How you doing, little boy? I've got a dog on my lap now, a little... Uh, you're going to take the photo of that, are you, Sally? Hello, Billy. You love the song. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? Does he love music? Oh, how funny. He loves positive... It sounds weird, but he loves when people have a bit of positive energy Does around them. Yeah. Look, his tail's wagging. He's, he's wagging. <laughs> Hello, but you love the song, do you, darling? <laughs> oh, sweet. Anyway, uh, it was written by Bruce Springsteen, and Springsteen, you can get off the lap now, Billy. Uh, Springsteen struggled with the song for almost four months until his engineer, Jimmy Levine, got involved. At the time, Levine was producing for Patti Smith, and Levine says, I told Bruce I desperately wanted a hit with Patti Smith, that she deserved a hit, and Bruce Springsteen agreed as he had no immediate plans to put because the night on an album, I said, why not give it to Patty? Bruce replied, if she can do it, she can have it. Cool song, huh, Raj? It is, it is. I don't know it personally. But yeah. one thing I do want to say is that um, our dog, Comet, seems to um, have kind of um, somehow sensed Billy's presence at the other <laughs> end of the line and has just kind of like appeared with his head in my lap, facing me as if he's wanting to say oh, hello. So, Raj. comments right I, here I, too. I, I literally couldn't believe it. I, uh, Billy's been sitting in that corner, sleeping all show. Next minute, Patty Smith's on. He jumps up, waggy tail on my lap. Uh, if you have a dog, what music does your pet respond to? Text me two one. Zero one. Andrew says, best song and singing you've played all year, Wallace. 25 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. New data lays bare the issue of the number of students that are simply missing from the education system, which has almost doubled since October 2021. There are now more than 8,600 children aged 5 to 16 who are not receiving any education. Non-enrolment has jumped 70% so far this year. With us to discuss is the Henderson Intermediate School Principal, Wendy Isera. Wendy, kia ora. Kia ora. These are quite some stats, so I'm pleased you're on the programme. What are you seeing at your school, Wendy? Well, we are definitely seeing um, significant numbers of children away. Um, in a nutshell, towards the end of last term, when when this was raised with me, I just sort of said to one of my admin staff, you know, tell me over the last week what have the numbers of absences been like? We're a school with a roll of over just over 700, um, and and there were every day, every single day, there was over 120 basically. So you had 140 one day, there was 148 another, 163 another day. Um, and the other interesting thing too is that, for example, one teacher will say to me, oh, look, I've got 28 out of 30 children back and we're all going, that's wonderful. And then the teacher who's in the room right next door is saying, well, crikey, I've only got 14 out of 30 regulars at the moment. So there is that, um, you know, within the school even, there's that, that huge variation. 
at the end of last term, I had lunch with a um, college principal who's a good friend, and it was interesting because I was just, him and I were chatting about this too, and his comment was very interesting. He just said, look, um, kids are now out of the habit of getting up and going to school, um, which is alarming. I mean, it is alarming. And, and I personally think when, when we use the word, word truancy, yep. truancy, as I would have, I've been a principal for 27 years. So mm. when I first uh, started as a principal, um, if I think about what, I, what truancy meant to me and what it means today in 2022, it's quite different. It's almost like, is it really truancy or is there another word we need here? Um, because, yeah, I, I feel very concerned that we are simply going to just lose a whole lot of children for a few years because it's not as if agencies aren't doing the best they can do with the resources they've got. But I just think the issue um, is, is too big now. Our school as well, one of the lovely things I think about our school is that we truly represent New Zealand society. Like, I've got some exceptionally wealthy families and I've got some absolute poverty line families. So I've got the real, the haves and the have-nots well and truly. Um, so I've got, for example, a parent who is giving the school $5,000 towards a school trip. And then the next parent who's saying, look, can I, um, can I get uniform and can I pay it off at a dollar right. a week? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, we've got a panel, uh, uh, Wendy, with us. We'll go straight to them. They'll have uh, questions as well. Let's start with you, Raj. Yeah, I, this this came as a huge shock to me, and um, and it just goes to show that the full toll of this pandemic um, takes so many forms and has had so many implications across people's lives uh, beyond the obvious ones of ill health or death. And I another point that I completely agree with is um, is you know is a is a reformulation in our minds of this. Uh, idea of truancy, which which is a word which to me has these kind of connotations of morality and of skipping school. And I think this is a phenomenon. It feels like a phenomenon which is a lot deeper. And mm -hmm. anecdotally, uh, my mother, who's a retired school teacher in India, has talked about precisely this issue over there, particularly in lower income homes. And my wife, who teaches at a university here, has spoken about falling numbers and students who are struggling at tertiary level. But to hear of so many students who are no longer on the rolls at schools is really tragic. And, and looking at the graph, I wondered if the current uh, cost of living crisis is also having its impact because in 2022, the graph rises especially steeply. Wendy? Yes, look, do you know what's interesting too? We get parents when we ring them to chase up. Look, my two admin staff spend most of the morning now, the two of them on the phone, tracking and trying to find where children are. And, of course, phones don't work anymore, so you ring the emergency one. That doesn't work anymore. So we haven't got any way of even contacting. Right. And, of course, what we're getting is we're getting a parent that will say, text us, and will say something like, look, um, you know, I've got no credit on my phone, not until I get my benefit money next week. And and also parents mm -hmm. saying, look, we can't come to school, we can't put petrol in the car, um, and we can't come to school because they've grown out of their uniform and we can't afford a new uniform. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, of course, just saying, just bring them and we'll give them a uniform. Yeah. But that whole the whole issue of the cost of living, we, we've also got... 
um, parents who are saying, look, we've had to move in with my sister because we can't afford to live where we were living because one person in the household's lost their job or their, their hours have been cut from 40 to 20 hours a week, these sort of things. So, uh, look, at it, it's very interesting to hear yeah, Sally. about what's happening in India. Yeah, Wendy, um, I've a report from the Education Review Office in May um, showed that Pacific school students were disproportionately affected by the pandemic, and and it said that you know reasons included because they had they struggled accessing digital devices or um, struggling returning to school after repeated lockdowns, and their NCEA rates went down compared to other groups. Do you see evidence of this in your school? Well, the reality, we're intermediate, so we're year seven and eight. Um, and and we we really are just seeing it's, it's across the board. But definitely in terms of, as the previous panellist mentioned, the whole, it's a socioeconomic thing. And it, and it definitely is. It definitely is. So people who are struggling now with the cost of living and struggling to... Um, their children, it's just easier to keep your child at home. Just it's a whole fi- lot easier. Yeah. Just finally, Wendy, I guess the, the big issue, because these are, this is quite a significant trap, these oh, yes, kids dropping from the system, not going to school, is there any pathway to get back into the school system and what do you see as the solution? The reality is what, what we did in, in our school towards the end of last term was a lot more people involved in the phoning. So for the classroom teacher, the classroom teacher's got too much else to do. So as far as putting that on the classroom teacher, can you keep trying, can you keep trying? No. Two of my DPs, for example, did things like went out to homes and knocked on the door um, and things like that. And as I say, the reality is... It's the we can't give up and we mustn't give up, yeah. and we therefore need to keep uh, we need to keep at it, and and it just means again resourcing, because the reality is, um, for example, my PA she's now working out in the front desk as well, because we need her along with the executive officer who normally normally Jill does the the morning rings ring around for people who are away, and that's fine, and it was only Jill we only needed Jill to do it, but now it's Jill and Shania. So yeah. we've now got two staff members who are now doing that. And I think that's the critical thing. We, we have to, we just have to keep at it. Um, as far as saying, well, they'll drop off the system and the ministry will pick them up, that's not good enough. We have to actually keep going and we have to actually keep chasing and chasing and chasing, well, finding out the reasons why, mm. seeing if there is something we can do. Because actually in some cases there isn't. The answer that we'll get from an auntie or something will be, oh, no, look, they, they got... They, they got evicted from where they're living because they're behind with rent. Okay. They've now just gone north, right. and, and now oh. they're living up on someone's farm and not sure what's happening. Well, I know you're, sort of you're really busy, Wendy, you and your team, so I, I really appreciate you making time for us on the panel here. Kia ora. Thank you. That is Henderson Intermediate School Principal Wendy Acera there. It's 16 to 5, big response regarding... Uh, what your dog or pet loves regarding music. We've got little Billy here, little Billy. What sort of dog is he again? He's a beagle spaniel Beagle cross. spaniel in studio He's here. He's a little mongrel. Uh, and loving Patty Smith. Uh, Robin Sefton says, my fox terrier howls in unison with Maria Callas. Ken says, my dog likes the music the Ute Keys make when I pick them up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dog Plum howls at Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. So all well looked after. Uh, and cared for dogs. It leads me to this next story here. We've talked about this before. I want to bring this up again. We spoke to SPC 
a chief executive, Andrea Midgeton, on Monday for the launch of their Break the Chain campaign. She said, inspectors want to do more for a dog but can't more often than not. Since Monday, over 15,000 people have downloaded the SPCA's letter template to make chaining dogs for life illegal. With us is the SPCA Scientific Officer, Dr. Alison Vaughan. Dr. Vaughan, welcome. Are you there, Alison? We've just got a bit of a phone line. Oh, no, there it is. Tell us about the mental and emotional impacts of chained up dogs, those dogs that are on the chain for hours, if not days. Yeah, thanks. Um, so the, just to be clear, the issues we're trying to target is not just those chained dogs, but also dogs who may be confined in small um, cages for okay. extended periods. Gotcha, yes. Yeah, but the, um, the consequences of this are similar. So dogs experience loneliness, boredom, frustration. They are a social species and they need companionship and they need to be better, uh, treated better than being left at the back of a garden on a chain or cramped in a cage. Uh, What struck me was actually when this issue came to light, I really didn't know a lot about the issue. I thought that you you had the power to go in there if you saw a dog mistreated. Your power was to get in there and take that dog away. Not true. Um, This article I've been reading here by Virginia Fallon saying most Kiwis are actually unaware this goes on because of the very nature of the practice. We don't see them, but tucked away in backyards across the country, thousands of dogs living in miserable conditions. Is that what you you, you think it's fair? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, so this is something that is, as has been said, New Zealand's dirty little secret. But right now the law makes it very difficult for SPCA to intervene unless the dog has physical wounds or is um, suffering severely physically or has a lack of shelter or water. Um, so what we're really pushing for is for the minister to make a commitment to progressing regulations that will specifically target the issue of prolonged tethering and confinement. So that's where we see dogs for weeks or months being on the end of a chain or cramped in a cage. So when you say weeks or months, do you mean they don't get exercise, they're just on that chain the whole time? Exactly, this is the issue. So what SPCA is not looking to target is temporary tethering. Or, um, because we do appreciate that not everyone has a fenced yard and sometimes people may have to do that for a short period. Um, but what we see, the difference is that those dogs would typically be part of the family. Um, so they get that social interaction, they get exercise, they, um, yeah, like I said, are part of the family. They, what we're trying to target is these dogs that are left and forgotten. Okay, because I, um, reading this, I was thinking of farming situations where Dogs are on chains, working dogs sometimes, or they're in a small space, you know, at the end of the day, that's where they live. So you're saying that is acceptable? That's not the practice that we're targeting. So we appreciate that many working dogs get a very fulfilling life with lots of exercise um, and uh, interaction with people. It's these dogs who don't get exercise and who don't get interaction with people that we're looking to uh, take action for. Right. Yeah, I mean, I really struggle to understand how there cannot already be a law against prolonged chaining. And, you know, the other mystery of it for me was, why would you have a dog if all you intend to do is keep it permanently chained? Because you still have to feed it, clean up after it, you have to endure all its bored barking or its cries of pain. But then... Mm. 
you miss out on everything wonderful that comes with having a dog. So is it some kind of sadism? I'm sorry to use a strong word, but I don't get it. Like, um, Mm-hmm. So this, there could be many factors and each case is different and it's important to acknowledge that. But the cases could be things like someone gets a puppy and it lives in the home while it's small and very cute, but it becomes unmanageable um, without training and um, it's confined in the end to a life on the end of a chain. Alternatively, it could be someone who has got a dog for the sole purpose of having a guard dog um, so that they want a dog that will bark on the property. Just finally, Alison, I haven't brought this up. I, I do want to bring this up because I personally find uh, animal abuse stories very hard, very hard to read, very hard to take, very hard to take in, but nonetheless very important to highlight. The, this must impact the mental health of inspectors not being able to do anything to help. Absolutely. Like this is something we know a lot of the imagery and a lot of the stories we've been putting out um, to support this campaign have been very confronting for people. And I do acknowledge that it's very difficult, but this is the reality. And it's really important that people see what our inspectors are dealing with every day. And so we would encourage anyone who does feel strongly after seeing these things to um, to take action and to send a letter to the minister. We have all the information to make that easy for you on our website and on our social pages. So please help us make this change. Kia ora, Alison. Thank you for your time. That's uh, Dr Alison Vaughan there, the SPCA Scientific Officer. You're on the panel this afternoon. It is Friday afternoon. And can I just say, it's so lovely to have your company uh, today. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks always for getting in touch with the panel. You can text us 2101. You can always email us on whatever thought you want. Email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And you might even suggest a story that you would like us to pick up or follow up. And we are with Sally Wendy this afternoon and Raj Chakraborty to a completely different topic. Uh, This really caught my eye, being a Lamington lover. It's from the ABC. Queensland folklore says a Toowoomba chef invented the lamington and that it was first served in the Garden City in the late 1800s when Lord Lamington visited. And the cook had to come up with something quick, so coated some sponge and some coconut, gave it a little bit of colour, your chocolate or your raspberry. And it was National Lamington Day in Australia yesterday. With us from Australia is Emeritus Professor Morris French. He's a food historian and has written a book, 280 pages of it, called The Lamington Enigma. Professor French, welcome to the panel in New Zealand. Good afternoon. Lovely to have you on. Now, firstly, I've got to address this. You say that New Zealand has absolutely no claim to the Lamington. Are you 100% certain about that? Yes, I'm absolutely certain about that. A, a few a few New Zealand pranksters, a couple of art historians at the uh, University of Auckland a few years ago published a, a painting of, a, of a, a kitchen in a farmhouse in New Zealand, supposedly in the 1880s, which clearly showed uh, a lamington cake on the table. Unfortunately, it was published on the 1st of April. OK, so Sally has got that very picture in front of her. I have, and it's actually... <laughs> This one says the 31st of March, and it was called a Wellington, not a Lamington. And um, 
I'm, I'm, you know, it's a bit like the pavlova and farlap. I'm pretty keen on thinking, actually, the lamington started off as a Wellington, and it's in this lovely portrait called Summer Pantry, and dated we were 1888. Yeah, and we were fooled. <laughs> Professor French, why has this one thing, why has the lamington endured? I mean, for goodness sake, there's a National Lamington Day. Yes, I think, I think National Lamington Day has faded a bit since the bicentenary, at least in Australia it has. It's not that widely celebrated anymore. But the, the Lamington has endured simply because uh, it was, um, regardless of how it was invented or created, uh, it, it had endurance and longevity, especially in the hot Australian summers. It was very popular to take to bush dances at night time or bush picnics uh, or even afternoon teas on a, on a homestead veranda. Because it had the, because it was um, a sponge cake coated in chocolate icing and desiccated coconut, it could be transported over in the, you know, over bumpy roads in a horse and wagon for reasonably long distances without uh, being upset. It also uh, could last for several days. Um, Amazing. And remain you know, relatively fresh. So that's why it's endured uh, from the time it was. Uh, came on the scene in the late 1890s through well into the 1950s before it became a, a sort of a large-scale bakery and supermarket item. Raj Chakraborty. Yeah, you know, um, um, I have to confess that after this program, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to um, sign that petition about prolonged chaining, and I'm going to take my first bite into a lamington. I haven't <laughs> done that yet because um, they've always looked really Whoa, sweet. But hang on. Raj, um, you have you yeah. have not you've not tasted lamington. Are you going to revoke my <gasps> citizenship? <laughs> well, who knows? Or, who knows? Morris, are you listening to this? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I, I'll ask you what sort of lamington is it? Because one of the debates about the origins of the lamin, lamington is whether it initially had a jam or cream layer in it as well, which gave it extra sort of freshness. Uh, the, the early recipes that I came up with when I wrote my book nearly, nearly 10 years ago um, was uh, that the first recipe appeared about 1900 or 1901, and it was a, 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 a single square cake. But I've, since my book was published quite <laughs> much, most frustratingly, um, I found a much earlier recipe, December 1899, as the first Lamington recipe published, and it had a cream or jam filling in it. Wow. Oh, well, hey, Morris, you mentioned earlier that it was easy to take somewhere and it wouldn't last a couple of days, but I always find I get so frustrated with that desiccated coconut. It gets around my lipstick, it falls off down my front. It's a bit like sort of bad dandruff falling off. I just don't feel it's the most elegant sweet treat to eat. Yes, well, they probably either put too much on or they haven't let it dry properly. I'm not, I'm not actually a very good cook myself, so you're not asking the right person. Well, you're on the right program, Morris, because I'm a massive Lamington fan. It's one of the reasons why I got you on, because it's part of our, it's part of New Zealand folklore as well. I don't know if you know that, but it's huge. If you go to any community bakery, community hall, you might have your Nina's Tart. You might have your Sally Lunn, but you've always got that Lamington Morris, be it raspberry or be it chocolate. Yes. One of the, 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 the queries I had in, in my book was uh, it, the, the Lamington was 
uh, a lamington recipe was published in New, in New Zealand in a Dunedin paper about six months after it uh, appeared in, in Australian papers. And I clearly wonder why that was the case. And at first then I realised that uh, around about 1900, before the First World War, there was a very strong shipping line between Sydney and New Zealand ports. Uh, and so it was quite, the recipe was quite quickly transplanted across the Tasman. It is lovely to have you on the program, Professor French, and thank you for your insight today. That's fine. Enjoy the Lamington. Well, Raj, that's for Raj. Um, I, I, want, I want feedback, Raj. When you take that first bite this afternoon, I would like you to either uh, tweet the experience or uh, email me so we can come back to you uh, and see, see, what you, see what you think. And it's Complete Lamin- with photographs. I Complete will. With- <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Hey, and, and Raj, I don't want to put you off Lamingtons, but I remember when mum used to do sponge cakes and it went a bit stale. She'd put some sort of pink stuff on it and some coconut and pretend it was a lamington. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to um, do a tweet first asking people in Wellington to recommend their favourite lamingtons and then head out and take a picture. You've both been wonderful. Raj, Shakravati, Sally Winley. What's, what's yeah. your favourite lamington flavour? That's right. The only flavour yeah. is raspberry. Thanks for being with us. Ayana, thanks for producing the show. I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint next. See you Monday.